Hello everyone. Today you have Jake and Seth and we're going to be discussing a 1975 film based on an 1888 Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling novella of the guy who made the Jungle Book. And the this Correct, movie yeah. is called The Man Who Would Be King. And it stars um, well, I'm sorry, Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Christopher Plummer, Saeed Jaffrey, Shakira Kane, and it's directed by John Huston or Houston. Um, this movie has an incredible ratings on Rotten Tomatoes of 97% from wow. critics. Uh, it's, and I think it's 93 for the audience about that, which is great. The It was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Writing, Costume Design, Editing, Art Direction, which is interesting. I thought it would have been gotten some of the bigger ones. Um, and it made $11 million on a $8 million budget, which seems like kind of a high budget, and it doesn't seem maybe as successful. But at the same time, I couldn't find anything in this. I couldn't find anything calling it a failure or saying it was a bad film because it's, it's very well received and it's not a bad film. But so even though it's not making as much money as I normally say they should make or it's not hitting 2.5x or it's not even at 1.5, I right. think it's remembered. It seems to be remembered as a good film. That is... I'm going to throw it to you, Seth. This was your echo. I know you're more familiar with this film, and I know you know the director. So I'm going to kick it over to you. Yes, yes. Uh, so this was a movie when my brother and I were little kids. Like, when we first were started to become aware of, like, Oscars and stuff, at some point we asked my dad, like, what was the best movie ever made? And for whatever reason, my dad would always say, well, it's the man who would be king. And it was always, like, this, like, go-to answer of his when we were little kids about, like, what's the... So this was always my dad's favorite movie. And so that's kind of how I always think of it. It is, like, a real dad movie, too, if you, if you kind of think about it. But, like, um, now that I'm older and I've, like, re-watched it, and I kind of understand, like, why he thought it was that great of a movie, but I also see... Um, I mean, it could have been up for more awards. I'm not totally sure what was going on in that year. My sense is there were probably a much bigger movies uh, going on in, in 1975 or something. But um, that yeah. that was the golden age. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, and um, that's a hard time to get. Uh, and like, it was up for Oscars and stuff. But like you said, it didn't get an acting nomination. It didn't get a director or best pick nomination. And it's like you could make a case for any of the for for a couple of those. I, I can quickly go through some of the best picture noms, and this might explain it. Yeah, hit me real quick with those. Godfather Part Two, <laughs> Chinatown, The Conversation, <laughs> Lenny, Towering Inferno. So wow. Wow. So we have, oh, and so I'm sorry. That might have been the previous year. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the previous year. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the next year, Seth. <laughs> One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry wow. Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. And those are all wow. legends. So that's yeah. So yeah. All, I mean, all of those movies deserve to be recognized. Uh, I I would say at least three or four of those would be above nines for me from those two years there. So mm -hmm. like, like you said, this is just heavy hitter time period for getting awards and stuff. Um, but also John Houston was a guy, um, as I got older, I, I gained a ton more respect for his movies, particularly, uh, the early movies, stuff like, um, Treasure of Sierra Madre and, um, the, what do you call this movie? The, I always, the Maltese Falcon. I always mix up, mix up. <laughs> but Maltese Falcon, Treasure of Sierra Madre, two of my favorite Bogart movies, two of my favorite Houston movies. And there's a lot of Treasure of Sierra Madre in this Man Who Would Be King movie. 
and I know that there's a long history of Houston trying to make this. And I always compare John Houston to Orson Welles because they kind of start out at the same time. They both have these huge debuts. You know, Welles has Citizen Kane, uh, Houston has Maltese Falcon. And Wells constantly fought with Hollywood, constantly had trouble making his, his like big masterpiece movies and stuff and was always kind of like always felt underappreciated and all that. Houston went about his career much differently where he would kind of do like the one for me, one for you. You know, he was well known for going on on location to shoot things, stuff like African Queen, Treasure Sierra Madre. It's like early on going on location like that was kind of like unheard of and he gets a lot of value from going on on location too you see it again in man who would be king even though it's later on in his career but the exoticness of the locations really plays well for what he's doing stylistically and at the end of the day it's kind of like i could have seen him made make i think this movie was supposed to be made with bogart and and like clark gable yes in the 40s or something and then at one point um it was supposed to be made like i know paul newman and robert redford were rumored to be so i know a lot of different duos were involved uh in terms of like different people that could have made it with them i think for several reasons it got delayed but like i said houston you know he wasn't the type to kind of like be put off by uh, some adversity. You know, if studios were giving him trouble, I think he was smart to have like shoved this project and kind of like put it on the back burner and wait for the right time. And then when he gets when he gets Connery and Kane, I think that's like I don't know if it's the perfect duo, but they play well. And it's like it's clear that they're friends. You know, they're both from uh, from Britain, and it's uh, them being in India, kind of being these soldiers in the eighteen hundreds. I just thought all of it. It played well for the story. And I enjoy both actors. And I enjoy, you know, I know there was, I read some criticism about Michael Caine completely overacting his part or something. And I actually, I enjoy Michael Caine, you know, kind of playing it up a little and going hard. And I really enjoy Connery's transformation in the movie. And in terms of like who he is in the beginning and who Let's he is. Let's save some of the movie. stuff for the convo, my man. You're burning through all the good stuff. Um, but I, you're, I, I agree with pretty much with most of the things you're saying. Uh, I just want to quickly note um, some of the casting choices that you that you walked through. Uh, Humphrey Gable, Paul Newman yes. was a uh, and Newman and Redford. And so the reason I'm just jumping in is what I thought was interesting. Clearly, um, is it John Houston or Houston? I always say Houston because the daughter is Angelica Houston, and and you know the father's Walter Houston. So I say Houston. I'll say Houston. So um, <laughs> John Houston. He kept having these American guys, and apparently Newman was the one who looked at him and says, "You need you need British guys." And he recommended Connery and Kane, and Connery took it because Gable, I believe, maybe it was Bogart, one of the two initial leads was his favorite actor, and knowing yeah. that they were initially up for it is what lured him in. But I just want to say you na- you nailed I think my favorite thing about this film, which is the chemistry between Kane and Connery, which the whole film is built on. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but we we can. I'll save that for later. That's kind of getting more gripey, but their chemistry, I just absolutely was like blown away. Like I, at first, I'm not going to lie, like 20 minutes into the film, I was a little bit like, what's going on here? It just seems kind of like an old film. And then once yeah. you get the two of them on screen together, it just takes off. And I was, I was like, I, it's hard to put into words how much I liked it. Cause before that, it just, to me, when you're watching, we Seth and I, side note, we had a conversation with one of our friends recently about old films. And he's of the mind that old films basically <laughs> suck no matter what. Um, and we were talking about Casablanca. And so Seth and I disagreed with him vehemently. And so for me, but I understood what some, 
to me, sometimes movies feel dated. And this yes. was a movie for me that kind that felt for really somewhat dated going into it. Cause the first 20 minutes they're talking about like the politics of India and it's this scam and there's all these weird moving parts. It's all this weird preamble and setup. And then once you get to the two leads, it doesn't matter. And they just like, yeah, it, the story just takes off and it goes from a two to a 10 and never lets up after. I definitely agree. I feel like the weakest act of the movie is actually the first act. Um, not that it's like horribly done, but it's just a little uneven. And you're right; you're not you're not having the chemistry of the two leads yet. And it's like that whole setup with Kipling and the Freemason stuff. It's like it's just it, none of it's that great. I, I found that to be the most dated. You're right. When I was first watching this, I was like, I hope Jake doesn't fall asleep in the first twenty minutes. But once you get onto the adventure with these two guys, and they're and once you realize that like these two guys are going to go to like this uncharted territory that's super dangerous to try to like become the first king since Alexander the Great or something. It's like this crazy idea they have. So there was, I did have a question there. And <laughs> I, I, only because you brought it up and it happened early in the movie. These two guys are Freemasons. I'm not very familiar with Freemasons. I'm, I'm learning more. Were but... they, or I thought they were pretending that to kind of get Kipling, that whole con in the beginning. I thought Kipling was a Freemason, but they might have been kind of pretending or something. So that's another question that I had. At first, I thought they were okay. pretending, but, and they could have been, but they seemed to know enough. They knew enough yeah. to fool Kipling, and they had, they knew all the lodge numbers and everything. And the, the only, it felt like when they left, when Kipling was trying to help them, the way they ended it by saying whatever that, he was trying to help them and trying to discourage them. And for whatever reason, the way Cain ends it with that was some weird, he says something that elicits a response that seems to put him at ease about like the, the mother and the widow's son or something. And yes. So, it's like a Freemason line, all that stuff. It's like, it's on the level and it's on the rule. You know, yes, it's like, all yeah, but I met you on slogan. the level. We're leaving on yeah. the square. And so for me, it, it felt like they were part of the Freemasons, but this is the thing that bothered me the most. When he asked, he mentions no one's been there since Alexander the Great. And he says, who's that? <laughs> like, I don't, you one, if you're a Freemason, and I don't think Freemasons have anything to do necessarily with Alexander the Great, but this it supposes that they do. But more importantly, if you're a Freemason, I assume you have some education or understanding of history. And even if you're not everyone knows yeah Alex. that's fair when he said who's that i agree i was like how do you not know that like anyone's education kind of covers that but that's kind so of like xerxes read... or darius like there's some yeah, people exactly. who, who are it's beyond like... like they they go beyond their continent and time and they live throughout time but my little read with the freemason stuff i actually i think that connery and kane were pretending and it was part of that whole ruse in the beginning with kipling but I think what, you know, one of the lines Kane has, uh, like Kipling tells him something about the, he's like, you know, the Freemasons go all the way back in time. And some people think they built Solomon's temple. And Kane's like, sounds like an old wives tale, you know, like a real rude British guy would say or something. And I, I can think actually they're supposed speak to, to that quickly. Cause I just, oh, sorry, you go, you go, you finish. Okay. But I just think my read on it was that they were kind of like, they were pretending and Kane was kind of like looked downward on it and thought it was like, oh, this is just a bunch of mumbo jumbo or like a boys club or something. But then when they actually get to the city and you see the all seeing eye and you get that connection back to Alexander and you're like, oh shit, there is like, there is a through line with Freemasons that do, does go all the way back in time. And it's like, I love how Houston plays with that kind of stuff where it's like, 
you know, he gives you that perspective of like, oh yeah, this is just stupid nonsense. But then he's like, yeah, actually Alexander, like that's part of his shit too. And like, if you really think about history, that would be there. And it's like, I like how he plays with that. And it, I think it relates to other themes in the movie too, just in terms of like how they're con men and then Connery believes he becomes a king or almost a deity basically. And it's like that whole trans you know, progression for him, I think it's similar to the Freemason thing where it's like, oh, we don't believe in this, but actually this is real. And it was part of Alexander. And it's like, I just love when the real history comes back into play like that. I love it too. And I apologize for interrupting. The one thing I was going to say about the Freemasons and you heard when Rudyard Kipling or Christopher Plummer's character references, they might go back to Solomon's temple. I am by no means an expert. I am not a Freemason, but I just read from hell. And that is a book that deals with, it is Alan Moore's incredible. It's actually kind of a tough read, to, but it's all about the Jack the Ripper serial killings. And this sounds crazy, but it ties it to Masonic ritual, myth, and legend. And so it, it dives deep into the Masonic. Now, whether this is real or not, I'm not sure. But where I'm going with this is, according to From Hell, within the Masons, the the Freemasons officially started around the 1700s and were what was a, more of like a union for actual stoneworkers. And then um, over time, like rich, wealthier people, like wealthy, educated people in Britain from the empire who had either, as they started joining. And so it went from being this more like traditional, rich, like ancient kind of like fraternity. And as more people came in, it started like their philosophy started growing. But with this being said, so it supposedly started in the 1700s, but there are rumors that tie it back to the people who built Solomon, the Solomon's temple. And there's tons of, from hell really deals with that. And then now this is another line. There are some rumors that it goes back even deeper, further than that, that it's part of these called the Dionysian builders who built part of Atlantis. And so the Freemasonry kind of, so where, I see. Yeah, yeah. There are different threads within Freemasonry, and then in Freemasonry, there's apparently just one belief, but then there are rumors that there are subgroups within the fraternity that have different beliefs. And the one thing I will say about that, I can't speak for the Freemasons, but as a member of a fraternity um, in college, we had subdivisions within the fraternity. There were more select groups within this fraternity right. that were outside of the power structure within the fraternity but would induct people into their own rituals. So the idea that there is an elite group within an elite group within an elite group is by no means, I think, alien or out of question. But that, I'm getting way too down the Freemasonry, but just I agree. No, I that. agree. That whole thing about, like, you're right. Because, like, throughout, when there's a group that, that's that old throughout history, it's like there's going to be rises and falls in terms of, like, the popularity of it. There's going to be rises and falls in, like, what their actual philosophy is. And, like, there's going to be changes in it. So I, I, I think that all that's true. And like you said, like, there's different points of it where it's different kind of things. Once it's like actually involves stone builders. Other times it's like really philosophical stuff. And so I think everything you said is great points. Cause it's not just one thing. It's like different threads of different things, but it's all under one umbrella kind of stuff. But when, with all that being said, now, the more we talk, the more I'm kind of leaning towards your line of thinking and that they weren't Freemasons. They learned the basics enough to get by. Yeah. And probably they probably got it through nefarious means, like maybe getting someone drunk or threatening them. Right. Or just like hanging out with other soldiers, whatever they had been involved in, you know. So I did. So 
Can I tell you, so right after that point where they decide to go on the adventure, the most cringeworthy part of this movie, and it just has to be said at some point here, I'm pretty sure Sean Connery attempts blackface and a Rastafar, like a, a dreadlocked hairdo, and I was just cringing for every minute of that. It, it's the most dated part of the movie. I get what Houston's trying to do there. They're trying to blend in with cultures, and he's trying to kind of be undercover. I just wish they didn't do blackface. <laughs> I'm the. Uh, it's funny. I noticed it, but it was lost on me because it's not the like. And this is not. I'm not making an excuse or saying I agree with you. It wasn't like the more absurd. Yeah. Um, Thomas C. Thomas Howell blackface. It felt right. And again, this might. It's sound more racist. of a dirt face. Yeah. Exactly. I don't want to sound racist, but like to me, it's like, oh, he could be tan. He could be. He literally like it's kind of hard to tell like and also it's yeah it's not footage. full blackface like it's He's still like, it's just it's just hard to watch anything going on with the yeah I did notice the dreads though and that to me like that was the thing I was that like, wasn't good that yeah. wasn't good but the one more thing I quickly just want to touch on because I agree with you I read too that people were bashing Kane his performance yeah I thought sense. that was interesting he was the con man he was the lead like he was the main guy like to me if it were Inception he would be the um the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character who was like, yeah, kind doing of. the dirty work. Like he's yeah. the one who's like right in your face. And my read on that, I was surprised by those critiques too. My read on that is that like at the time, I think people must've really thought Connery's performance like should have been, I think Connery's performance is the one people wanted to be nominated and like we're a little surprised it wasn't. I could kind of see people being like, well, Kane's like, he's trying to be too funny. He's going, you know, he's going, taking up too many lines kind of stuff. But I, the chemistry between them is great and I wouldn't change anything about it. You know, it's like, I like Connery's uh, kind of transformation and that I, I like that Kane kind of stays true to his like, yeah, I'm just a guy out for the money and I want to go, you know, he's like that Bogart character in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It's like, yeah, I was just here for the money all the fucking time. I feel like <laughs> you and I, we have several group of friends and I'm sure many people do, but we have like friends, like we have these type of friends. Like there's, yes. I always think of, Corey and Namori in high school, like they were like peas in a pot. Like they were, but like one was Ying, one was Yang. Like yeah, you're gonna have definitely. one who's really outgoing. They're they're both outgoing, both whatever. But you're gonna have one who's like just operating at a different frequency. They can't both be laid back Sean Connerys because then exactly that's not, yeah. that's not the way it works. You need to whether you call it good cop bad cop Ying Yang. You need we whether it's in a movie or your own life, everyone knows those two pals, like these guys, like who are always getting into trouble, but always getting out of it. Yeah. Always or like even, teams. even comparing it to other duos, you know, like Newman and Redford, it's like Newman has to be the slick talking mm -hmm. one. Redford's going to be the guy that, you know, girls want to look at. And it's like, that's just the way those two guys work together. And I, yeah, you're totally right. And it's like any type of pairing, there's a, you know, whatever one brings, the other one has to kind of bring something else. And I think that's going on here where it's like Connery is like this alpha, but he's a much more subdued, slower talker, you know, has an intensity about him. And Kane definitely has that like slick, quick mouth, you know, sharp wit type of thing going on. I think the two, the two scenes that come to my mind, it's one, the battle where Kane is the leader in terms of like, yeah, he, but he's the one with like leading them. But then Connery just throws their plan to hell and dives right in. <laughs> and, but then, so there Kane is the more reserved one in battle and Connery is kind of just old blustery. Meanwhile, then I think of the train scenes when Kipling each meets them and you yeah. have Kane as this outgoing thief who is throws the guy off. He's very he's going through all these all these hoops to just like make what to meet Kipling. 
And then meanwhile, Kipling goes to meet Connery and he's sleeping, kind of ignoring him. And then when he, and then he acknowledges and basically sends him on his way. And like, they're both different, so different. And where, where I was going with that was to your point, they each bring different energies to the same situation. And it seems like that's how they balance each other out. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, honestly, I'm probably more trusting of Connery in terms of like decision-making and that you're, you know, Kane kind of seems like the one that's outlandish and like is willing to risk too much for money and stuff. But then as the movie goes on, it's just crazy how Connery changes. I, I love the second and third acts of the movie. Actually, I really, it's one of my favorite endings. I realized of any, I was thinking about the ending and just how like, he walks out onto that bridge uh, and it's just like, it's a great way to end that movie because it's like, he really ends it, you know, being like, I could have been this, I was this close to being a God. And it's like, I could have lived my life that way. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just, I was amazed that he decided that it was like, I'm not even going to try to escape this. I'm just going to walk out onto this bridge and get what was done. You know what I deserve. Maybe my friend will live kind of thing. I, I'm Let's save the end, because I think I'm going to come in a little different place for the end. But the transformation, I thought, was interesting. Because it started with the battle, where he broke rank, and then he got shot right. with the arrow that really hit his bandolier, and then people thought that he was bulletproof. Yeah, that whole conversation they have, too, about how should we, you know, Connery's like, I'm going to go out and tell him, and they're like, no, let's, you know, Kane's like, we should use this. And as soon as they did the Son of Sikander, that's obviously, I was, it was, I knew it was going to come back to bite him in the ass, but I thought they did it well. Also realizing that Sikander was Alexander, I thought was cool. Didn't put that together at first. And then, um, but I liked how- Oh, I also, it. sorry. I love that scene where the, he goes to the temple for the first time. And then the the, pre, the high priest is like, now we will see. And you're like, what the fuck are they going to do? And the guy tries to shoot an arrow right at him. And, he went, and like, I love that it's like, oh my God, is he going to die here? That moment I thought is great too. I liked it, and even when they when he went to stab him and he sees the Freemason symbol, I liked it. I, I liked, I thought, w- once they get to the caravan, like once they leave yeah, India, yeah. everything takes off. And then once they, the first battle, when, when they, uh, Uta, when they go to Uta's village, and then when they go, everything moves quickly, but it feels earned. And it like makes sense. And then what they do, they do such a great job, I think, of, advancing connery's character the one thing i will say i could see especially older critics back then kane's character doesn't have much development like we don't really see the change like he gets crucified spoiler he gets crucified at the end and we see the product but we don't see his character actually go through the change connery has a more traditional arc i feel like and yes so i feel like that kind of hurt them not I mean, you could say, I mean, maybe Kane's changed by the time he's limped back to Kipling. You could, like, maybe make an argument. <laughs> but, like, I agree with you. His character, I think he mostly stays the same and is mostly out for money. Uh, yeah, it's the. I still don't, like, I think that's where that character is supposed to end up, end up, though. It's like he's the one trying to pull Connery out at the end. You know, he's the one who's saying, the other, you know, the other moment that I think really sort of shifts uh, the characters in the movie is that moment where it's like once the high priest has accepted Connery, you know, he sees the all-seeing eye and he's like, oh, you are the son of Alexander. He takes him back into that room with the treasures and it's like they start looking around at this shit and they're like, this is ancient Greek gold coins. And, you know, this is like we could fill our pockets and be millionaires or we could take all this home and be the richest people in London. And I think that moment, you can see on Connery's face that it's like he's realizing, oh, my God, I, you know, 
I, this could be more than just being a rich person. This could be being an important political person. You know, he starts dreaming about having conversations with the queen. And then, and then you know, from there, it's, I think he just loses his mind. It's like after that treasure room, it's clear Kane's looking for an exit and Connery's like, this is where I want to be. It's the interesting point where they reach, they have reached the end of their agreement where they're kings yeah. now and Kane wants to, lift off and go connery doesn't and i liked it i'm not i'm not gonna i didn't see it coming but as soon as they had that scene um i i kind of had that feeling that connery was being changed by it. and that's probably from his performance because yeah. they're not making it super obvious uh, it's, it's a great because it's real quiet in that room and they just kind of looking around at it and they're like looking at each other and then they talk to the priest and they're like we can take all this and he's like yeah do whatever you want with it and it's just like they're like holy shit i did what i love first of all i loved that he had what i'm assuming are real afghans and real people yeah. or at least if not from afghanistan from the region or closer i liked with the exception of connery there weren't people in blackface, which was going on in the seventies in some films. Right, like, I think it, I think it was mostly shot in Morocco, but the, like that high priest was a local. All those people were like locals. It, that's that's authenticity you're not going to get out of actors, you know. And <laughs> yeah, I mean Uta's teeth; those were in effect. That, those were real teeth. And yeah. what I loved about the way um, the the priest and the holy city, I I love that. I love it when there's a room full of treasure that no one there cares about. Because it only yeah. means something to outsiders. Because they don't care. They're not leaving. They're not going anywhere. No, they're going to stay there. And to them, the treasure—it's just a room full of treasure. Like it's—they're not—they can't do anything. It's just it. things. Yeah. It's like I love that too. There's all this stuff in the movie like that, and I love that. It's like the the way they regard Alexander as like a true god. But then you think about it, it's like Alexander was just another man. You know, he's just a guy that came through there and was doing the same things that Connery and Kane were doing. And it's like there's all this commentary about sort of like the the con uh, that men play on each other and also like the real power that men have kind of thing. You know have what I you, mean? So that's, this is something I, now that you mentioned, I want to bring up. Have you heard of the term cargo cults? Cargo cults. Cargo cults. I have not heard so this term. That term comes from the Pacific war in world war two between the U S and the U S and allies and Japanese. There were many islands in the Pacific that were still, excuse the term primitive i mean they didn't have electricity yeah. they were these old like more shamanistic so what happened was the u.s and allies would come in and they would they needed these islands to build um runways on to build so what they would do is they would drop people down they would build runways but there weren't any ports there they could only land a plane and they would drop cargo down so it was literally there would be these crazy islands, totally these un isolated cultures were now seeing the U.S. Army and the U.S. allies, and they were seeing planes, and not only planes, they were seeing the most devastating weapons of war, and men to them that I'm sure seemed were probably twice as large as them, and all that stuff, and, and then they were treating them well. I'm assuming they're treating them well because they're worshipped, but then they were giving them food and giving them technology, and then they left. And so do you know what? And so they left. And then 10, 20 years later, people, now that these were mapped, people started going back. And what they found were that in some of these islands, after the allies left, they started building new runways 
because they wanted them to come back. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> these people wanted the allies to come back because they thought they were gods. Wow. And so the old way of that going is that, to your point, whether it's Alexander or Connery, and I think this is so fascinating from a theological standpoint and as a historian, uh, as a minor historian, was Hercules just another Alexander from 2,000 years before that got yeah, deified? And to me, it's just so exciting. It's so interesting and exciting to think about. Uh, and Alexander is just one of the most interesting characters in history. But the, to your point, the idea that the reason he is deified, it, he was still also just FYI, Alexander was short. Even he wasn't an imposing guy and he was short by Greek standards back then, which is pretty short. He's probably like the height of like a third grader, but he's remembered as a God for the things he did and the way people remembered him. And yet he's still flesh and blood. And that's what it comes down to is that he was able to maintain the illusion that he was more than flesh and blood. And Connery let the, let the, his lust get the better room. One more thing before I, I throw it back to you. The thing about Alexander, which is interesting and what I think he's calling back to, is Alexander was known for being a drunk and having a terrible temper. But he was known for having incredible discipline when it came to women. He did not... He he, oh, he, he he did not rape women. He did not assault women. And he only... I mean, aren't there rumors he might have been a little he, homo? <laughs> he almost definitely was. He was Greek. And yeah. back then they were Hephaestian was his lover. Um, yes. But he still took women. He still, had, he still slept with women. He had kids. But that is certainly part of it. But even then, the idea, though, that he was chased and that that's what they used to... Right. To, and that's what kind of led Connery down the round path. It's because gods wouldn't want to... He convinced me he wasn't a god because he didn't want to have sex with their woman, which is probably a pretty big cultural takeaway. And Connery blew the blew it all up because he just got horny. That was I. I don't know if I was like I. I hear that point. I, I like that read too. That it's like it's a harkening back to Alexander, the whole chase thing. So I think it's a good point about how they're kind of staying chased and not drinking, relating back to Alexander. As a viewer, I did find it hard to believe that these two sort of like swashbuckling British guys would like walk out into the unknown and not have a drink or a woman you know that part where where this woman derobes in front of michael kane i was like this guy would would do this right now <laughs> uh, uh, the thing i didn't understand about that was the british army conquered most of the known world and i'm pretty sure that their soldiers were neither sober nor celibate during that massive yeah. expansion I know U.S. soldiers were neither in any of their successful campaigns. So the idea that they need, I get not drinking, but the idea that. I, no, I, yeah, I was like, I don't know about that one. Yeah. I mean, if you guys don't want to sleep with women, you don't need to sleep with women. You don't need to make <laughs> excuses not to sleep with women. You, you can do what you want. I, d I did think it played well, especially with the priest and everything, that they didn't want him to take a woman because they all see him as a god. And that all, you know, the woman's scared of him too. Like she thinks she's going to turn into dust or something. And it's like, all, I thought all that made sense and that that was the real undoing for him. And I, I thought it was, it's like telling that he couldn't see past that. It was like he couldn't, he couldn't enjoy just living as a god. He needed to have, you know, human carnal basic uh uh you know pleasure basically to enjoy that life and it, it's like there's something about that where it's like you couldn't let go of that to enjoy just being a god like you needed to bring that with you i thought that was the most interesting part and talking about some of the deeper meanings or themes of the film it's that once he reached godhood he immediate quote unquote godhood 
in, in the idea, in the eyes of these people, the one of the first things he did was the most human thing of all. And, right. and also, I mean, when every priest there is saying, Hey, don't do this. Like <laughs> you, you probably shouldn't do it, especially when the priests are the one who legitimized you. <laughs> like, uh, I love that scene too, where the like he's trying to talk to the priests about what he's going to do, and they're like, "You shouldn't do this." And then he turns on them, and it's like, finally, you hear Connery go to that deep, heavy, angry voice, and it's like he does sound like a god. He's like, "Tell them to bring the girl," and it's an order, and it's like you're like, "Holy shit, Connery!" <laughs> I love that he can turn that on that quickly, you know? Yeah, when he's like, "Am I a god or a dog?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's great. And what I liked was they did the the his dispensing of justice and they just did one case. And so I love game of Thrones. Oh yeah. That was a great scene. too. <laughs> I, the idea, the idea of justice, I think, especially in these old ancient times where there's not eight courts of appeal and the random right. rights. And the idea of justice is really just someone dispensing what they think's fair. I thought it was a great example of the type of justice he would bring. It's also just an interesting insight into the culture, but that um, every time people who didn't see, the idea is that this man was having his wife sleep around and every time she slept with another man, he got uh, six uh, mules or goats or cows, some type of animal in return as compensation. And so he was literally pouring out his wife and getting, and he amassed this massive herd (laughs) <laughs> but when Connery learned of it, he realized that he was taking advantage of it. And so what he ended up doing was he forced his to compensate the women of the. So for the husband who had his wife hook up with these other guys to compensate the wives of the cheating husbands, he made them pay back all these cows and cattle. But the thing was that he made them pay back more than they had taken. So he basically had to whore out his wife. 10 more times, 14 more times before he could pay off the debt. And uh, he's, he said, he's see how you like it when your wife's making money for other men or other families. And it was, I just thought that was funny. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, there's a, that's a funny scene just in terms of his ruling, but I also, that's one of my favorite scenes in terms of like Houston starts to shoot Connery differently. And it's like, he starts to sit on this throne and he's holding the arrow and he starts to wear a robe instead of a uniform. And there's also canes kind of behind him. And it starts to have this more of like a regal emperor kind of look to it. And it's like, I love that all of a sudden it's like, you believe you kind of are going back in the ancient times. And you're like, this guy like is like, he's a guy to these people and he's making ruling decisions like a judge. And I love that he recreates like this ancient world in like the middle of the 1800s. I know I've used the Gordian knot before, yes, but yeah. it, that's another Alexander thing. But I think it's so interesting just to think about that in that we're pretty, not our country, but the world is very, people divvy up by ethnicities and it's very, it, it, wherever you are, the idea that a foreigner could come into these lands with these ancient, even then, these ancient traditions and just come in and right. dispense justice and be revered as a god. <laughs> Whether it's an 1800 or 3000 BC, 2000 BC, it's, it's you, and you realize it is a force of personality. And as a, again, as a history buff, this is something I've kind of learned through both modern history of the United States and democracies and all the legends about whether it's 
our Alexander the Great, excuse me, the truth about Alexander the Great all the way through the legends through King Arthur. But the idea is that nations, you're rather a nation of laws, whether it's Rome or America, and it's not the men that are deciding, it's laws and it's these institutions and there are traditions and that is how things are governed. Yes, that is yeah. more modern. Like that, there have been periods yeah. of that. More in more general terms, and more often, it's men, it's cons, it's um, it's it is the European invaders, it is the Greek invaders, it is the Persian invaders. It has been men of power who have come in and established their own power and staked their own claim. And it's just interesting, and it's the idea. And again, Game of Thrones deals with this a lot more. It's in it in Game of Thrones, it's the idea between the wildlings who are free and choose their leaders and the more modernized civilization where their leaders are chosen by birth or through other means. And it's just the idea. It's those two differences. It's there are the only thing that can upend those institutions and establishments are men of influence, men of charm, men of charisma, and more importantly, men of experience and success. And those are the people who come in, but even then you need to tread lightly because if you're Sean Connery, you need, you need to be more than a God. You need to act like a God. And that is where people get, can get tripped up. That w- one of the things I find really interesting about the movie is just like, you know, if he hadn't made that mistake of getting the wife and he did take that, like you do have a sum of money there that you could turn yourself into a serious like nation and like, sure, be a small nation, but you would be recognized politically. And yet you could be diplomatic to, to other queens and kings and rulers around the world. And I, like the interesting question to me is like, what if Connery did establish himself and put that money to use kind of, and like, did, like you basically do become the ruler of that place. And I think it's not that uncommon from how people really do amass powers, honestly. It's like, it's either a military coup or they kind of con everyone into taking it over. And it's like, I think it's really interesting in terms of like, it was a real, like he was that close to doing it, you know? The crazy thing too is without understanding, and they talk about some of the politics of Imperial England or the Britain early yeah. on. But they, we see, we saw them handle the governor or commissar or whoever the, we saw them handle a meeting with one of these bureaucrats very well. They knew the bureaucrats and as Freemasons, they would have, where I'm going with this is they had the connections that you needed, especially where they were in that region. The idea of a friendly kingdom sprouting up next to their Indian colony Right. would be probably welcome ruled by a british man would probably be very welcome by the the british empire at that point point. and again if he could say hey here's alexander the great's gold this was at a time when britain was pulling up like I, again um probably captain obvious here britain and france and the u.s does it too for hundreds of years have been pulling up ancient relics from other cultures and bringing them to their cities and museums and so the idea that britain could have gotten their hands on any treasure they would have made him king for just i mean you think of it yeah this time period for britain too between northern africa india hong kong i mean they're all over the map uh and they're just making money i mean it's really the peak of the empire kind of stuff oh yeah and imagine if they could say we're and now we claim the kingdom of alexander the great we have his crown we have his jewels whether it's America, France, we'd love it too. Germany, anyone would love it, but Britain especially. 
at that time. That would be the that could be especially the if you could play it as yeah as like his true descendant of Alexander, and you could kind of like muddle it that way. I think that would you know it like it would be amazing. <laughs> Do you know what was really interesting about that was when he talked about how he was a, the spiritual successor. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, that was a good line. Well, I, but what I loved about that was the idea of blood succession is really a medieval European. And, and and then expanded from there, but it, it is though in Rome, uh, the until actually or for most of Rome, like Julius Caesar's heir wasn't his son. He didn't have one, but it was Octavian. He chose someone to be his heir. It wasn't he was related, but it wasn't his son. And there right. was an idea of choosing your heir, and the that idea of it didn't need to be blood, but it was a legacy. And again, going to the fraternity whether it's Freemasons or real fraternities, there's an idea of choosing your family or even just friendship, your own friends, your own sports teams. You choose the family, you choose who you want. And that idea of passing down kingdom, a kingship or power, and not to who you owe it to through blood, but who you think is wise or worthy. That idea I think is really cool. And I'm reading too much into there because they don't dive into it, but that idea of a spiritual success. It's great. That's a great read. One of my favorite things about that is like, you could watch the movie and and see Connery as being worthy of like being the second son of Alexander. And you can also watch the movie as him being a total con and not being deserving of any of it. And I think if the movie plays well kind of with both perspectives. I think the way I looked at it was he was worthy until he fucked up because he, he was brave. <laughs> yeah. He was yeah. dispensing justice. He also wasn't greedy. He didn't he wasn't gonna just take all the money and run. He wanted to rule. And he was celibate for a time or chaste, whatever you want to say. And right. not that those four things make anyone perfect. You can still be a total asshole. But within the frame structure of this movie, within the framing of the character, he was a god to these people. He was bringing in these weapons. He was undefeated in battle. He was bringing justice. And he you was... Can definitely, his actions are definitely worthy of being the king of those people, you know? It's like he fought off all their all the people that were attacking them. You know, he, yeah, he brings rulers. Uh, he builds the bridge to the holy city. You know, that was like a big deal. It's like all of his actions are the actions of a ruler and a good one. And it's... Now, here's my question. Do you think if Michael... Now, this might, might be a little more philosophical. Was if their roles had been reversed and Michael Caine had been thought the son of Sikander, would it have oh. turned out the same, do you think? Or do you think there could have been a, a chance for a different ending? Maybe not happy, but a different. That's a great, that's a really great question. Because I think one of the things Houston's trying to prove is that it's like the power of a king or the power of a deity is too much for any any human to handle. And so it's like, I think in that reading of it, even if it was Caine shot with the arrow, he would have he would have been like oh my god you know eventually he would have been corrupted by it by the power as well i agree and so here's one more question and this might sound bogus and i feel like you might laugh at me but the way kane the way it ends with kane talking about the so you mentioned it the film ends connery is killed they break they cut the bridge the bridge that he built they make him stand on it unbelievable scene to watch that bridge get cut so incredible also, before Temple of Doom, Jake. That's before Temple of Doom. Just for a moment. And the one thing, also, I didn't realize that, but it makes so much sense. The one, one other thing I want to say, the battle scenes, actually seeing Not real bad. people, like just for someone, I'm, I don't want to get on my bandbox, but CGI is great, but way too overused. Get 500 people, put them in a goddamn field. Don't CGI 10 people, like uh, 50 times. Give me real people watching those people pour out of that um, 
Oh my God, there's four or five wide shots where there's hundreds of people on screen going in the the same direction. And it's like all of it uh, choreographed, really well done. Huge, those huge scenes with the many extras is unbelievable by Johnny's. I have chills right now, Seth, just thinking about that (laughs) scene, that opening battle. And even the final, the final scene when they're being like, like escorted that, it's just... I'll stop. He gets so much. He gets so much production value out of the exoticness of the area and just using the locals. And it's like those are simple things. And like the way he shoots the action sequences, he's not doing anything complicated. He's he's taking a wide angle. He's letting you see what happens. You know, he will cut up close so that you can see the arrow and the thing or whatever. But it's like you know everything that's going on in those battles. It's not quick cuts like a Ridley Scott thing. It's like you just see what's happening. You know, it's I just I really one of the things people say about John Houston is that he can do any style because he has no style, but I actually think he has a tremendous amount of style sometimes where it's just like, he doesn't overdo it. He just shows you what you need to see. And that's all you want as a viewer. So I haven't seen enough of his things, but for you saying that, that I love people who can go from style to style and to with agreeing with you. I don't think that means they don't have their own. I think it yeah. means that it's adaptable. And then if they can yes. tell stories in different ways, to me, to use our pitching analogy, it's just another pitch. You can, if that means yeah. you have ten pitches, all the better. I don't, which one you use, I don't care. But if you can give me, to use the, I'm actually I'm gonna get lost in that analogy. I'll cut myself out. But um, <laughs> I, I was just the more and the more we talk about it, the action was great. Um, the, and even I say that, I would like the choreography isn't incredible. There's a final scene with Billy Fish, who, by the way. I loved one of the best parts of the film. Oh, that's a great character, yeah. Billy Fish um, does this. Insane end for that guy. <laughs> it's an insane end. And also, like, they're basically ask him to ride a horse or something with a horse. And he says, he's, he's basically like, I, he says his rank and name. He's like, I'm not cavalry, I'm infantry. Whoops out his sword and runs headlong into a mob of <laughs> hundreds of people. And he slows them down for a minute. But it's just when you look at, and I was paying attention. The choreography is not good, but the way he acted, and it's it is a wide shot. You're far away, so you really need to look. And then when you're looking, it's still this is the thing. When you see him attacking them, like he's not hitting anyone, but then he gets grabbed. No, yeah. But then it cuts to the to old Peachy and Drabble, and then it goes back to him, <laughs> and then you see him being lifted up in the crowd. And whether it's him or That's a the body, scary part. it yeah. is terrifying watching his body being thrown yeah, yeah. and, and it's, you just, all you hear is a scream and a bloody body thrown up from a crowd and yeah like, oh, and so oh. for that it to your it's for like a modern viewer if you're if you're expecting the tight action of an mcu film or jason Bourne film no but if you want like a real wide if you want a scene with scale and it has like emotion yeah. and like it like builds it i'm blown away i want to see more of these films i'm t- like Watching That's it. the thing. It's like you know. I think Houston knew it wasn't epic. It's not exactly an epic budget. I think you said it was like around ten million or something. But it's like the what he gets and what he works with. I always think is a like he he just squeezes so much out of what he what he's using, it, it, including the actors. By the way, I think he would like. I think he, there were several times on set where he kind of made fun of Connery and Kane for how much they were getting paid, and he was like, "I'm not even going to help you. Like you're getting paid too much. Take care of your part." There, I heard. Uh... One of the things I read was about him giving Connery a hard time. I think, and it sounded like it was in that vein. Apparently, he's definitely afraid of heights, and so they had a stuntman do the stunt, and he fell eighty yeah. feet onto a small area, and the stuntman knocked it out of the park. But 
That's like a really dangerous stunt, whoever the fuck did that. Good job by them. So afterwards, Houston said it was the best stunt he'd ever seen. But after reading about it, it really sounded like a stunt that shouldn't have been happened. Like, really should not yeah. have happened. <laughs> but with that being said, so before they did it, Connery was on that same bridge that the dude jumped off of, which is an 80-foot drop. And Connery, when he was going to go, it, when they're about to film it, he looked at Houston and was apparently a little... Connery, by the way, was a, a World War II vet, apparently a secret agent, like... Connery is not a win, so I'm not saying yeah. that. But Connery is scared of heights. And so he was apparently getting a little squeamish about going on. And Houston just looks at him. He's and he's like, hey, John, like, uh, does the bridge look okay? And he and Houston just like stares over to him and does the old Seth Cohen deadpan. It's the same bridge as it's been every day. The only difference is you're gonna be on it. <laughs> basically, that was always said. And this is Kane telling the story, and apparently Kane just thought it was hilarious. Like Basically, this is this American director turning to turning to Connery and being like, "Chill out, like it's gonna be okay." I yeah, I have no doubt that uh, I have no doubt that bridge was dangerous. I have no doubt that stunt was dangerous. It's one of those things where like, if it goes wrong, I'm sure John Easton really got a lot of blame. But it's like he fucking pulled that shot off, he pulled the stunt off, and you know the movie <laughs> came out. What's it's one of those things where it's like sometimes you got to be a gambler, especially when you're on set like that. You know, it's like there's nowhere else to go. You got to make that happen at that bridge. It is true. And as I say that, like, there are plenty of movies with dangerous stunts that I've seen and loved. Not that I love this movie, but uh, Mission Impossible 2, it's actually Tom Cruise, like, free, 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 I don't know what the right term is, but he's literally climbing up a mountain with no harness or anything. And so it, I do get that sometimes the art comes, there's a, the yeah. juice is worth the squeeze, especially yeah. so long as everyone's safe at the end. That, I like, thought that bridge sequence, I thought played tremendously. I, when I watch it, I don't see the stunt double. You know, I see Connery on the bridge, and then I see the fall, and it, it all looks seamless to me. The, now that we're talking about Seth, was there a bigger message there about the difference between godhoods and priests? The fact that the godhood was taken away by the priest? I'm just curious. Like The whole power, the whole social structure, it, the way I'm thinking of it is it, it would be the equivalent to me as if someone, all of a sudden the Pope was like, hey, this guy is the next coming to Jesus. And then he does yeah. something the Pope didn't like, and the Pope's like, hey, guess what? I was wrong. This guy's... And well, instead of people turning on the priest who chose the wrong God, they turned on the God, which I thought was interesting because by acknowledging that the priest was wrong, it should invalidate his authority, but the... I see what you're saying, but I think my read of it was that, like, you know, everyone's at that wedding watching the ceremony about to happen, and when she bites him, it's like the majority of the people see the blood on his face and there's yeah. no hiding it. You know, it's that out there. He turns around, he sees the little, everyone sees the blood. And I think it's one of those things where you're supposed to be like, okay, everyone recognizes that's a man bleeding from his face and it's not a God. I just realized, and this is probably to Zack Snyder's credit, that was almost the exact wound that Xerxes had at the end of 300 on that. Like, that's true. It, yeah, it, you're it right. It was a cheek yeah, yeah. wound. Yes. And it's again, it, it, the point there was um, very different movies. But the idea right. that if a god <laughs> if a god can bleed, he's not a god, and that right. he can die, or not, so, uh, wow. Also, side note: Do you know uh, that Roxanne, the the woman he was trying to wed, that was Michael Caine's wife? I did, I did, I didn't know that before. I learned that first of all, gorgeous actress, gorgeous woman, yes, <laughs> gorgeous woman. I think they're still married too. Um, so the story behind that, I want to because you brought up there is some there is an interesting casting story there. Originally, Tessa Dahl, daughter of Roald Dahl, oh, wow. was cast. I did not know that. 
she had lost weight. She was cast, lost weight, had her teeth capped, was re- was wow. was ready to do the role. And apparently, the film and production had started. And Houston was at dinner one night with Kane. Connery might have been there too. But apparently he kept saying, we have, he's like, I have to be able to find an Afghan princess. He's like, he's like, he's like, I need to be able to find someone. And at dinner with Kane and his wife literally looked at her and was like, Hey, do you want to do it? And she said, no, they had to talk her into doing it. But so they chose her. And I think it works. One, she's beautiful. Um, two, yeah. she also looks the part and not having a, a, another white person in dark face or black face, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but at the same time, it's also I, funny. It's funny when Kane's just like, she certainly is an eyeful, you know, and he's just talking about his own wife. Yeah, that, I did. That was one of the things that, that was funny too. I wasn't sure if they had any, I wasn't sure if there were any jokes there going on, like maybe smaller in jokes that we were aware of. But I thought she was great. She's the only real female character in the film. She doesn't have any lines, um, which you could dig into the film for the lack yeah, of female characters. It's definitely a white man's film, which is a, a funny. Uh, easy critique. <laughs> the one thing I would say, though, and you can call me a hypocrite, but you and I have talked about this. When you're talking about environment and setting, it makes sense because it's two white men alone in this world that is still very traditional. And Right. And it's like imperialism, British people imperializing, you know, it's like all of that makes sense to me. And so it's like, yes, it should be white people pretending. Yeah. All yeah. of it makes sense. But yes, it's it's based on, you know, yeah. the protagonist. <laughs> the idea like you couldn't. You could still have the idea you couldn't have any female dialogue in it. Like that, that's a fair critique, I'd say. Yeah, I, you could definitely, yes, I would, I would have, <laughs> I would have written a little more female dialogue for sure. <laughs> um, we kind of, I feel like we've done this, I feel like we've been doing the, the gripes and the likes at the same time. Are there any other things you want, uh, any other things on the top of your list? Um, I would say just sort of like, the, the datedness of the first act, I, like I was trying to understand why this movie was kind of forgotten. And I think some of it is like, has to do with how, how dated that first act is in the blackface or whatever. I think the other component was kind of what you were talking about in the beginning was just how loaded the seventies were in terms of like, yeah, Godfather two and you know, Chinatown and just these epic big movies. And it's like, this does fit in with them at, at the time. And I'm sure like moviegoers at the time, you know they did like it but it's like i can kind of see how it like it's just slipped through the cracks after the years and it's like it's one of those movies it shouldn't be forgotten like it's a great director and it's two great actors and it's like it's one of those movies that i wish i could make people remember kind of (laughs) i agree because uh as i said 20 minutes in i was a little bit like rolling my eyes and by the end of it i was like really like the film and i think that the from watching the film to talking about it, it's pretty clear the Rudyard clipping, the Rudyard Kipling part. That Christopher Plummer. Yes. Yeah, and I get they want to set up the framing narrative, but this is the problem. They only spend about two minutes at the end of the frame at the end of the film with the framing. They only needed two minutes of before. You didn't need to do twenty and two. And yeah. and the part of that is that the Freemason, it should have. They didn't need. I'm not going to rewrite it. I didn't think it wasn't that big of a theme. It could have been a lot more. You're right. You're right about the whole preamble was that he stopped their blackmailing of the Raja, which put him in their debt, which led to their signing of the agreement in front of him and using his maps. And with all that being said, they still blackmailed the Raja anyways. And as a Freemason, (laughs) he would have helped them anyways. So my takeaway from the film was that I had two, two 
bigger gripes. It took too long to get going. Like the fact we don't see Connery yeah, and Kane on screen until yeah. 20 minutes, that's just not good. The other one, and it seems like we're in a little bit of disagreement here. I think the characterization was great. My problem was it felt like the fall for Connery was a bit rushed from their falling out to the to, to the marriage to the biting. It just happened so right. quickly. And I, I again, I'm not going to rewrite it. I just felt like there needed to be one scene in there to breathe. Maybe it's the scene I, where I he, hear, yeah, maybe where he the 20, yeah. Sorry, the no, no. 20 minutes that go that feels too long in the first act should be spent in that portion of the movie, kind of expanding it. I totally agree with that. Fair critiques. I do that. You know that part. It is a little rushed. I wish. Yeah, it should just breathe a little more when the when Connery kind of like realizes he's a deity or whatever. But there's one. There is one scene in there where Kane confronts him about like, "Hey, I'm gonna take the money and go home. Are you coming with me or not?" And they have this really good back and forth between the two of them. And it might be one of my favorite scenes of the movie. But it's like it's the polar opposite of that scene where they're both quiet, looking at the treasure. It's like all of a sudden they're just at each other's throats and one guy is like we got to take the money and run and the other guy's like no i'm gonna live like a god and i'm gonna meet the queen and it's like what well, that, I mean, it's, it's such a powerful scene because it's yeah connery who uh, you can see i'm doing quotes is in effect a god is saying yeah. we should live as god like i want to live as a god but at the <laughs> same time he's talking to someone who in that same conversation proves he isn't a god because when Connery threatens him, Kane's basically like, what are you going to fucking yeah, do? Yeah, what are you going to do? And Connery backs down. Because it, it, and it's so layered. And I mean, yeah, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But to me, it felt so layered. And I love I love that. Like, I love yeah. that type of logic where, like, it folds in on itself. Like, I'm a god. You need to treat me like one. And, or, like, you need to respect me. And meanwhile, Kane is the one who put him in power is saying, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? I'm the reason you're... And again, going back, not to keep going back to Game of Thrones, but in Game of Thrones, one of the big uh, themes is the idea of power and that the, and there's this whole thing. It's like someone, there's someone says, oh, he's the king. He's the most powerful man in the land. And the people who are actually powerful laugh at that. And they say, if that's true, and they refer to some character, like, then why is he scared of him? And the whole idea that the real power is usually behind the person in the crown. And that right. and that's where Kane fits in, and that and he's the. I think there's there's also this thing going on with the two. Like you see them as such friends in the beginning, and they're like they're playing off each other, they're joking, you know, they're swashbuckling through the desert, and you're just like, oh, I love these guys. I can hang out with them all the time. And to see them get turned on each other like that, it really brings me back uh, again, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and like how gold or money or power it can turn your friends. It changes relationships, you know, and it's like even the closest of people, that type of power can change things. So I think it was Aristotle. It was either Aristotle or Plato who said in ancient Greece, uh, the fall of ancient Greece started when men started to value wealth more than knowledge. So, and that goes, so this has been, this goes back to ancient Greece, the idea of wealth over knowledge. This is something that our culture has been struggling with forever. But I, we talk about this a lot. Like, there are only a, there's only a few stories. Like there's only what seven or nine stories in all of like, right, literature. Yeah, yeah. But it's the idea of either telling them in a new way, giving them a new spin, or telling it just in. And what's the what's what interesting about this is it's giving a message we've heard before in a style I've heard before, 
I'm yes. sorry. I've, I've seen comic book movies. I know all about power corrupting. That's something a very familiar <laughs> right, way. Right. But at the same time, I can come into this film having seen, as you know, we're movie buffs. I probably started, I've probably seen every major blockbuster starting from the 80s and beyond. Haven't seen this, can come into it, and I'm leaving and I'm saying, this movie's awesome. It's, uh, I, it feels epic. I know it doesn't have an epic budget, but it feels epic. It's awesome. And I'm, I don't know when I'm going to see it again, but I am going to see it again, which I don't say about a lot of old movies. That was totally, I, like, I was so hoping that this was going to hit you, like, right in your, like, history. Bone. It's like, it's an epic movie for what it is, but it also just evokes all these themes throughout history that we've been talking about. And it's like, yeah, you can just watch it as, like, this kind of swashbuckling adventure, but you can also sit with somebody and talk about stuff from ancient Greece to present day and rulers, and, and it's just like, everything it evokes is awesome and the fact that you know all the themes play well and like i like to end that third act as well as it ends i think is just it's a great (laughs) again it's not a perfect movie we've like pointed out the flaws but like i love a movie that ends that heavy on the third act i love totally respect that it's this fun adventure yarn and it ends on the dramatic note like the fact that you pulled that pivot at the last minute to me, I just thought, and you're sad, like I'm genuinely sad for Connery when he's like, I'm like, I don't want this guy to die. Like, sh- like yeah, he's done some things bad, but like I'm not, I'm not ready for this guy to fall off a bridge right now. I actually didn't feel that bad for him. I thought it was oh, the wow. best way for him to go. And the, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> this is where I'm coming at from. He made a pact with his boy, signed on the <laughs> line, had a witness, and then he. You can make the argument that he didn't break it because, as he said, they became kings. But the idea was to become kings, and then the second half was leaving as kings. And he, yeah. the fact he didn't, the fact he didn't do you like that Kane has the skull with the crown on? <laughs> I love that. Love that he still has the the thing I loved about that was that crown alone would make Kane right. a wealthy man, millions, millions. Yeah. And even if he, I liked it. But what I loved was that Cain forgave him. And they had this whole conversation. Yeah, that's a great moment, too, where he's like, I forgive you for all that. I and, agree. Because it's like, they do they do sort of, like, rectify their friendship in that moment where he's like, Connery's just like, I'm sorry I did this. You were right about everything. And Cain's just like, you're forgiven. And you're like, you know what? You guys are good guys. <laughs> that was the one thing. I think that was the area that really needed to breathe. Whether it's them yeah, chasing them down. Because it's really quick. Yeah. Really quick to, to go. Yeah. To, I'm just sorry. To go from you're banished from my kingdom, but I want you at my wedding to yeah. like, oh, I'm bleeding to like, oh, it just. it. It's it, all fast. You're right. It's fast. It's not that it doesn't work because it does work. It just is a little fast. That's like yep. that's the only. What, that's, how did you feel about um, the Kane's outcome and that these people like what they they um, what do you call it? They uh, crucified put them on a crucified them. Thank you. So I'm so glad you brought this up because I meant, I wanted to bring this up before, but it's more appropriate to discuss now. This is gonna sound crazy. Did his survival prove that Connery was a god or maybe some type of angelic being? Because he's that's, I, okay, that's a good take. Because uh, I, I was gonna go down a similar way here. Because I, I was like, if they crucified him, does this mean that like when Connery died and he's got the, the, the crown on it, maybe he was 
like supposed to be the ruler of that place or something. Uh, maybe not. I, yeah, I don't know if a, a real God, but it's like, you're right. Like maybe that spirit was supposed to be there. And he mentioned, well, one, it's a miracle that he survives the, yeah, <laughs> this is, but this is the other miracle. They barely made it into the country as two healthy men. He made yeah, it I don't know how he got out <laughs> as a beggar with a band of gold, with a magic, with a special crown in his pocket. And, and he says that he never let go of Dravot's hand. So yeah. whether, I mean, maybe Dravot's, I, I think you could, the easy read and probably the real read is it's a crazy man who through by chance, circumstance, was able to make it back. But I think there might be, I'm a big believer in the Chekhov's gun theory, whether it's for an object or for a word or for a philosophy. I am of the belief that directors, anytime they put something in their movie, I'm not saying it that you can't have red herrings or kind of misleading clues, but I think good directors, everything they put in their film has meaning. And so I think John Huston is a good director based on this film and whether or not, I think it gets in the idea of belief again, whether it's really that yes. Bravo was a ghost or an angel or just the idea, maybe it was just the idea for Kane's character, Peachy, to think he was blessed. That's all he needed to get yeah. back. I, I don't know. And I, I think, it, to me, it's the most fascinating questions and aspects of religion and just those questions of, like, what is divine? Is it what we choose right, to be exactly. or is it actually yeah. divine? I think that all those things is what, that when you see the skull at the end, those are the sort of thoughts you're supposed to be having, which is exactly right. It's just like, what is, you know, was Alexander divinity or, you know, is there, is there a real God that's divinity or, you know, who actually has that type of, and so it's like, when you see the skull there with the crown on it, it's just a great symbol. And it just, it, I love it. It takes you all the way back into it where it's just like, was he a God? Like maybe we were all wrong about this or something. Like the thought I had was maybe in a thousand, two thousand years, they'll talk about, is it Sikander yes. the third coming? Is it the third yeah. who, who they're waiting? To that go? was actually, so this will go into my next question, Jake. Should this movie be rebooted or should there be a sequel? And could we could we do a modern day version of this movie? You definitely could do a modern day version. What whether you wanted to do like US soldiers in Afghanistan, like oh interesting. And not saying you need to have it be the same thing, but maybe something similar, like maybe a maybe more like a three kings um oh, yeah, story. Yeah. But I would say if you're gonna do a sequel. Go back in time. Make it like tw 10, 20 years after. Make it like uh, maybe oh, uh, something tells me these guys had a couple of illegitimate children running around or maybe some legitimate <laughs> children running around. Or maybe it's just a friend. Maybe you go yeah, back. Yeah, definitely some war buddies or something. Think about it. I mean, how old were they then? In their 40s? Like 50s? Yeah, seems so. What if they had like Fassbender, who's I think in his 40s now. Like it's Fassbender who's like, oh, he was the third guy who, another Mason <laughs> who couldn't make it. Yeah, um, right, right. Not not saying it has to be that, but yeah, like why not? I mean, also McCain's still alive. You could have him become that beggar character That's, again. Oh, that would be a great play if they like rebooted it and Kane was still like oh like knew about the the original journey or something. That would be amazing. I mean, but maybe, yeah, I do think I think there's kind of meat on the bone for this type. Like even if you set it 20 years after this the original one or whatever, I think it's a pretty easy concept when you think about it where it's like, and then as soon as you kind of get to that point of being a God, there's so much you can play with. And, and also it's a great, it's a great vehicle for just a, like a duo, like any actor duo that you want to put together. It's, it's just a fun movie to kind of 
to cast, I think. My mind immediately went to DiCaprio Pep. Oh, wow. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure you, maybe you do British, but no, I, I, I agree. I think. Day-Lewis and Fassbender. <laughs> this is, oh, I would love that. But this is what most, we talked about this a lot and people, you don't need to be a movie fan or see a ton to realize that older movies were usually more self-contained. But to me, this is one of the best examples of a self-contained story that is like ripe and almost crying for a follow-up. Right. Yeah. Like, or just, yeah. It just needs, it's like, it needs some kind of revival. It's just been so forgotten in time. I feel like, and uh, yeah, it's like, it would be a great pick. I think for a modern director to kind of be like, Oh, I want to do an epic adventure with two actors. Uh, I think it just, there's something about it. I, I just love, uh, I know. <laughs> I understand why it was my dad's favorite movie, Jake. <laughs> I do too. I, I do too. And I just think of a, uh... My mind keeps going Tarantino, but I don't think he's the right guy for it. Not saying he couldn't do it. I just think there's, I don't know who, and I'm trying to think who would he want. Can I say this? Paul Thomas Anderson? Ooh, that would be interesting. PTA? I would see the PTA remake of this in a heartbeat. I think you could even do, you know, you could even do an Asian, you know, uh, director and kind of do a more, you know, Asian version of it type of thing. It, I feel like you could do different locations. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be this place in Afghanistan, but I, at the same time you could and connect it to the original movie. Well, I think you just hit on something really important there. Cause like the, the beauty of Afghanistan is that it's that, that hub between your Asia right. and Europe and it's kind of this gateway and that is why it used to be so important back in the old days and why it's so important now. Um, but yeah, I think you're, no, now there were, I think you're right. I, I think the concept, you, you, you could do a straight follow-up or you can take the concept, transport it to a different time setting or maybe right, just, yeah. either one. And I think it works. I think you need, this is the thing I'll say now that we're talking about it, this film has much more depth than I realized and layers. I'm just trying to think what director, not that we need to pick it now, but I'm just curious. Right, that would like kind of fit that. Yeah, because yeah, Houston was this kind of, he himself was an alpha male, you know, and it's like, you know, that role he has in Chinatown where he's the old man, it's like, you can kind of hear him, like he's the he's the powerhouse in the room, he's the heavy, even over Jack Nicholson and stuff, and so it's like, you almost need a director that's a, that's an alpha, yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, who the modern correlation would be today, but it's like, Maybe Nolan. I mean, I could see Nolan. It doesn't have to be an action epic, but, you know, it's like it takes somebody that has skills like that to go out and shoot action scenes and shoot, you know, big exotic areas and stuff. Watching Nolan shoot more traditional action scenes, and I love it, but, like, watching him shoot, like, a battle without, like, time warping, spatial warping, like, a real, I think that we he's done incredible live action scenes and Dunkirk, we know we can do it. To me, that's really appealing. I, I kind of like that idea. And uh, I also, I, I want to say, I know Connery's had a, a career of different, all kinds of roles and stuff, but I do think this is a, one of those movies that proves like he was a very seriously good actor. Uh, and it wasn't, a, he wasn't just James Bond, you know, like he really shows a range of emotions in this movie and has that chemistry with Kane. And I just think, I think he's brilliant in the movie. I don't know if it, I mean, for me, it's what, it's got to be one of his top five actors. In my notes, even though he does blackface in the movie, <laughs> I know I know just what you mean. But in my in my notes, I literally wrote, "Wow, Connery is great." Like as someone who only knew knew him from like later work and right, yeah. James Bond, to see him in this film, mo- movie star. That's the word that kept coming to yeah. my mind. He felt movie like a movie star. star. He had that charisma. And as we said, 
for the first half of the film, he is the quiet one, but he still has this pull, this like mag- magnetism. And it's, I think that's the hardest thing to do when you are the, when you're in that duo and you are not the loud, boisterous one and you still right. can command your screen presence when sharing the screen with the, with the other great actor, tall, handsome dude who's has more lines. That, that to me is like a totally different skill set that very few people have. And it's, it, it reminded me of why Connery was Connery. Like he has that reputation. Yes. It's like, I just, uh, yeah, it shows you that more dramatic side of him, which I really like. Uh, And it's also, I, you know, I think there's one other movie that he and Kane were in together or something, but it did kind of make me wish that they had more of a Redford Newman kind of production. You know, I could have used a couple more of these, Jake. I I, feel like they were a real good team. I agree. And I'm sure, I'm sure you realized, I'm sure you knew this too, but in the research, it came up multiple times. This was cited as each of their favorite movies to film. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like they're having fun, too, when you watch it. You mean to tell me they couldn't have come up with more films where you can know, fit these yes. two guys in? Like, <laughs> a Lord of the Rings, maybe? A Harry fucking Potter? Excuse my language, but, like... It's crazy that both of them would be like, this was a blast, and, and then they just never, like, worked that much together. Yeah, you'd think at Hollywood would, like, be like, these two guys work. <laughs> the one... You... I think this is a good analogy for you can shoot it down the 70s 80s 90s of hollywood it felt more like the nba where you wanted that one superstar per movie yes as opposed true. to now where it's like two three and we have the marvel films where it's like you're stacking up superstars also as we're talking about it i'm remembering the box office really wasn't that enormous and so that would be another reason a production company would be like yeah we're not paying for both connery and kane if we're not getting a huge return here that was the and that was one of the questions i had it doesn't go too deep into about how much they were paid but you mentioned they both and houston was making fun of them it's a big budget. Eight yeah. million is big, and it feels like an eight million budget movie. Like I'm not, I I don't know for sure, but like I didn't feel you have these great. There's scenes, there's scale, there's battles, there's action, there's hundreds of extras, there's big yeah. stars, there's there's tons of different scenes and settings, and it, so it didn't feel cheap by any means. But at the same time, yeah, the only thing I get if it had that same budget. If it had that same box office, but with two cheaper actors, I guess that's Captain Obvious. Of course, it would be more profitable. <laughs> um, but I almost, I almost asked, it would what be if the you same. Yeah, it's like, like would be it be different? Yeah, yeah. I, obviously, be different. Yeah, I guess. It's I also, I, I, I do think that like there's, I think Spielberg, you know, and Lucas, there's a dusting of this movie in the Indiana Jones movies. Like, I definitely think there's a little bit of influence. I know that they were influenced by like James Bond and some other things, but I do think that they clearly kind of, you know, Connery's in this movie. And I, I, when I was watching, I was just like, it just, there's moments where it feels like Indiana Jones at times. It's funny you say that, especially with Indiana Jones, because I kind of got a Han Solo vibe. Like, I, 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 oh, wow. I did get the Indiana Jones vibe, but at right. certain points, I was getting a chewy Han vibe from the two of them. Interesting. Not, that's, <laughs> this was made before that so that's not so they're not i'm not saying that they're like aping or copying anything from star wars or but i'm just saying i i i agree with your indiana jones take too i think whether i may be giving too much credence to it or not but it feels to me that some of those films that came out shortly thereafter that we love that have like whether it's indiana jones or star wars things were borrowed from this film whether it's that chemistry or whether it's just them having great chemistry and that being the through line but the chemistry of those two 
as these adventurers, like an event, like an adventuring duo, it feels like an energy that was replicated successfully by other franchises. Yes. Back. Yeah. And I do think, yeah, see, it's, it seems more like it was like one of these movies that was like influential to other filmmakers and not so much like influential to people kind of thing where it's like, I agree with you where, you know, you watch other buddy movies, you know, like whether it's 48 hours or midnight run or something. And you're like, there's some element of this in there. And it's like, uh, I, yeah, I just think it's, it's weird. How, it's, yeah. I mean, parts of this movie just feel like we're very influential in other movies and stuff. And it's just, it's weird how it's just been a, a forgotten movie. I'm blanking right now. I feel like we've talked, I'm not to put you on the spot. I feel like we've talked about other movies like this, where it's like the first ones, like, well, one example right now, people are going to roll their eyes. Blade. It was a Marvel <laughs> movie film that wasn't right. super successful, but it did better than they realized it was R rated. And they realized like, Oh wow, there's an audience for well-made, comic book films and then two years later you get x-men and then since then we all know what's happened uh <laughs> it's, it's been nonstop ever since um but, but but yeah no one remembers blade and you're right that is kind of a touchstone point for marvel no one talks about blade it's the um i'm sure there are better examples but i mean i'm sure um, yeah like i'm sure there's a, an example of a buddy movie or like a duo movie before this but i mean there are elements of this movie that just play like throughout the eighties. Like there's kind of like these buddy movies that are going on and stuff. So it's interesting. I don't know. I like it. That, that, it's funny. The more we talk about this film, the more I like it. My score is definitely driving up, being driven <laughs> up by, by our conversation. Um, Do you get any questions left or we have the film? I, I think I only have one question left. Okay. Let me just quickly scan my notes here. Oh, this is one question I had. There's a conversation they have about luck versus destiny. And Kane's character believes in luck. And at this point, Connery now thinks he's a god. And they talk about how they got there. And to Connery, it's destiny. Right. So I just want to ask you, like, it's kind of a weird, I guess, maybe, let me reframe that. Luck versus destiny. Do you think they are the same or do you think they are different things? Because to me in this film, they're being treated differently. Um, so I, th I think um, in that scene specifically, it's all about perspective, and it's like the person who is sitting as a as a deity feels like he was destined to become this deity, and the person sitting next to that guy who just wants some money is like, hey, we lucked into some money, you know. He doesn't feel like it was purposeful, and so I think that's the the it, again, it's just like when you come into that kind of power, you you want to think that you yourself are that special. You want to think that it's because of something about your individual specialness, you have this power. And that's really not the case. <laughs> I mean, Joe Biden is just a man. There's nothing that special about him, you know? And it's like, he has a ton of power, but it's not because of some unique individual specialness, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's all about perspective to me. Yeah, he was, um, I agree that that's my take. I, I think it's a matter of perspective it's profits people who are considered profits back in the day would be considered mad now and right. it's the idea yes. and like the other way i look at it it's like sports always the quote in, in battles is if god's with us who can be against us and so just like sports it's like the idea oh the winner god was on my side was he really right. like was he really or did you do better and the thing what i liked about it was not to go too deep it's also my belief 
my philosophical belief when it comes to spirituality and just general things. It's, and this is stealing from South Park because they, strangely enough, touched <laughs> on it best. Sometimes what makes people special or divine, it's the belief. And it's actually that the, someone commit, it's, it is that's what makes them special. They're not, the, like, Dra- Dravit's not a god, but if he gets enough people thinking he's a god, then that can impart on him some type of, and it gives him a moral authority. It gives him the ability to do things that other people can't, but so long as he doesn't break the covenant with the people. Right. I definitely, that's definitely true of athletes. I've always, like, if LeBron James didn't believe in himself, he never would have become LeBron James kind of thing. And it's like, the athletes need to have that self-belief in order to reach those levels. And I, you know, even if you're not at that level when you're 14, you better be believing in yourself and working on your game, whatever, to get to that point. And so, yeah, it's the same thing where it's like, I think you can read it as like Connery is self-actualizing himself into that role, which is fine. You know, it's just like another reading of the event, but it's like, (laughs) that's the way he sees it. Obviously he sees it as like, I've self-actualized this and I deserve this kind of thing. Then I think the the lesson there now we're talking about it, it's that uh, maybe that's the difference between wisdom and strength or however you want to define it. He did get there, but he got there because of Peachy. And yeah. as soon as he got in power, he for, he stopped listening to Peachy and then he he loses it shortly thereafter. I think it's that like you buy your own hype. And again, using the sports analogy, from Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan was probably the best player, one of the best players, but he had Scottie Pippen. He had Dennis right. Rodman. Yeah. He had yeah. Kerr. He had Longley. He had good players around him. And it's would and they he have won with that? with that? Yeah. It yeah. needed a real team to win. He wasn't doing it on his own. That's a really good point. Uh also, I just love the name Peachy. What a what a name for a character. Question. I thought that was a nickname. Was that his was that his Christian name, Peachy? It's... They kept referring to him as Peachy, even as as with as when he's being interrogated as his soldier name, he kept saying Peachy. I don't I, I don't I mean it might be some like in British joke that I'm not aware of, or maybe it's it's a nickname for a different name, but by the end of the movie, I was like, "Ah, oh, it's Peachy." Apparently, it's a it's a girl's name, according to the internet. But oh wow, those Brits are. I thought it played beautifully, especially for Kane. There's something about it that was fitting. I did too. At first, like it, it, at first, it never took me out of it, and by the end, I'm like, "Ah, oh, it's Peachy." Like it, it was, especially the way Connery says it. There's a real ring to yeah. it. Peachy. <laughs> he somehow was able to put emphasis on like every single word, every single letter in Peachy, which is. Uh, maybe it's the Scottish brogue. I don't know how he fucking does it, but his voice, this is going to sound so weird, but listening to him talk is Unbelievable. like so entertaining. Like, and oh, I, I love and it. Not in a mean way, like, but his accent is so rich and powerful. And like, yes, it's, it's like, a, I actually think Schwarzenegger has a similar thing going on where there's something about the accent and the power of his voice combined that gives him this unique dialect and there's something going on with connery too that's similar actually now that you say that it's funny i think i think you're right because they both maybe in different ways and in different shades yeah schwarzenegger can go from terrifying to like humorous or intimidating to humorous in the same line and we see connery go from like charming to like godlike and wrathful pretty quickly too and it's it's that accent it's the accent where it's i think it's that special needle where it's this thick accent but you understand every single thing they're saying yeah, and the only the, the, the one other guy I might put in this category is Christopher Walken. Oh, yeah, like he just has this 
being accent with his voice, but you totally understand him. Great actor. <laughs> Love him to death. But it's like he has his own unique voice thing going on. Exactly. I think that's a perfect analogy because the cadence, like their accents and cadences and everything, like it, it's not the way you would, might expect them to deliver it. But it works, and it, yeah, I guess it's for the force of personality that they charge their own, their own skill. Not to I love that Schwarzenegger's in this grouping, by the way. Yeah. Walken, <laughs> Schwarzenegger, and Connery. I'm sure. I don't know if any we of we can do a full podcast just on those three guys. Oh my talking. god, that would be a dream. <laughs> I feel like uh, none of them would be happy being paired with the other in that grouping. <laughs> I feel like Walken would be like, "I'm better." Uh, they'd all be pissed. Yeah, they they'd all be paired. upset about it. <laughs> That, that maybe that means we're right. <laughs> so uh, I don't have any other questions. Do you have any other questions, my man? I think I'm good. I think I'm ready for final scores here. I'm ready for final scores. Why don't you go okay. first? Because I'm a little okay. topsy turvy. I'll here. go first. I think, um, boy, the second and third acts are so strong that it's like I really want to overlook stuff going on in the first act, but it's like you just can't overlook that. Like they kind of meander for 20 minutes. They don't get into the duo right away. Uh, setup's too long and stuff. And yeah, the blackface thing is just like <laughs> unforgivable, I guess would be the word. Uh, but once you get past all that, you know, it's basically like, it's almost in the nines for me the rest of the way, where it's like, it's just two actors giving great performances. It's a director at the top of his game, showing you exotic locations, showing you huge epic battle scenes, you know, just doing a... a, a a different array of things as a director, honestly. He, I think he's really good at some of those interior scenes and the dialogue between Kane and Connery, and then he's great at, like, the, the more epic wide shot stuff. Um, really enjoyed just, like, watching him operate in this movie. Because it's, like, it's one of those movies where he's kind of... It's the last movie, I'd say, that you could say is in his prime. And it's, like, that's a prime that's lasted from 1940 through 1975. And, I mean, I think he makes Annie after this movie, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Preezy's Honor is even like, I've seen that movie, it's not a terrible movie, so it's like, his, his just the fact that he's so productive late into his life like that, it's a real, uh, you know, it's a real, like, kind of jewel for me at the end of his career, and it kind of proves that, like, the talent he had as a young man, he was still talented as, as an older director, uh, and I just, yeah, the combination of, of his directing and Connery's performance, and then just having Kane you know, on for the ride and also, you know, adding a lot to, I, you know, it's hard, it is hard to score because that first act, but I think I'm at like an 8.2 for me. Dude, that's the exact score I had in my mind. Oh, I'm not just saying that. So, cause I Love agree it. with everything you said. I was originally, originally in the low sevens, but I realized if like doing just straight the arithmetic of it, like one act, two act, three act, it's like, Oh, I should be in the sixes or sevens. But then, those last two acts were so good. And I also, Kane, the first act isn't a complete wash. I like Kane. You get enough of him and Connery. But like, the, this film is more than the sum of its parts because the last two acts are so great. And this is from someone who's saying, yeah, I don't even think the last act is a bit rushed. It's still great. Right. Like, it's still very good. And that's why it's long. Like it is, and like it's a short credit, so it's two hours and eight minutes, and I think it's like two hours and four minutes or five minutes of actual movie. But right. that's not that long for, especially modern audiences, like for an epic, it's not long. And, and no, yeah, yeah, it's very manageable. The biggest knock against it is I, 
the Rudyard Kipling part, which we talked about. They spend too much time setting it up as a framing device to spend too little time at the end. My other issue is it feels like they got Christopher Plummer and just wanted to blow out the role and give him more to do. I don't know if that's the case or not. I, originally, it was going to be Richard Burton, uh, and then it turned into Christopher Plummer. But it's one of those things where it's like, we didn't need a third actor there. Like, we, you, you're totally right. That could have been an unknown actor. You cut it down to five minutes. It's a different kind of movie. That, that would be that would be my only real change I would make. And as, as we said, yeah, there's some of the blackface is bad. They could use some more women. But at the same time, I'm not I, we. It's a different time period. Yeah. yeah you, you, <laughs> if we're going to measure, it's like the sports argument. Yeah. Oh, Babe Ruth couldn't play today. Bill Russell wouldn't be good today. And guess what? Time travel doesn't exist. Like, I'm sorry. This film, it's not perfect. These things haven't aged well. But I'm not, I can't apply our modern, like, yeah. if I were to do that, then we really wouldn't like any film. Like, if we were to be like, oh, exactly. you need to have women in all the films, you need to have things for minorities. And the, this is probably not too defensive, but where I'm going with this is, um, I think this film, if to the modern lens, I see problems with it, yes. But enjoying it as a movie, it works. So I'm so happy that it that it uh, hit you in all the right spots. I was uh, I was a little worried it might be too dated. I'm happy you braved through that first act because it it is once you get into that second and third act, it's like it just opens up all these different thought areas that it's like you you don't even consider it when you start the movie. Honestly, no, it's and it's it. We talk about films being layered. It's a it is a easy adventure film, and it can be so much more. It's what you want it to be. And that's yeah. the hardest type of film to make, an accessible, like, philosophical action film. And I'm just totally blown away. I love it. <laughs> so happy. So happy we brought this one back from the dead. Back from the dead. 8.2 is from both of us. That's pretty impressive. And I know people are probably, like, rolling their eyes. Literally, in my head, I had 8.2. 8.1, 8.2, leaning 8. We do not discuss scores beforehand, people. So We never do. We never do. All right. 8.2, The Man Who Would Be King. Love it. Go see it. If uh, we suggest you should be people who should watch. <laughs> um, all right. Signing off. Seth, you want to say goodbye to our friends? Goodbye, friends. Goodbye.